while I was away um, helping another congregation whose minister was uh, on vacation, um, uh, learning about how to study the Bible. And um, that is what we're doing in this class. That's part of why, by the way, we don't have handouts for this class. It's, this is kind of big group, disco- uh, group, big group uh, Bible study <laughs> together. Um, we, are, we are opening the Word together and, and um, learning by doing, learning to read the Word um, in a Christ-centered way. So not just reading the Bible and saying, oh, wow, look at these helpful principles, but reading the Bible and saying, hey, this is part of a grand epic story whose climax is the New Testament. There is an authoritative end, an authoritative sequel to the Exodus story, and it is the new Exodus story, which comes when Jesus leads his people not out of bondage to a political power like Pharaoh, but out of bondage to sin. Um, so that's, the, that's one of the goals, learning to read in a Christ-centered way. We're also seeking to, to read in a way um, that I call literary, where we're trying to really read the text um, not for little isolated little gems or like, oh, wow, look at this kind of neat verse to kind of put on our bumper sticker or something like that, but like um, really trying to read the text as a whole and learning to read it in a way that uh, pays attention to how it creates meaning. How does it flow? How does the logic of the passage flow? So those are a couple of the goals I always have as we're studying the Bible. Um, so, Last time, or last time we were together, I introduced the story of the Exodus as a story that key part of the drama of the story is the drama of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those promises God gave in the book of Genesis. You have to understand those if you're going to understand the book of Exodus. So does anybody remember what was a key promise to the, um, the fathers, uh, Abraham and, and the others, that um, began to be fulfilled in Exodus 1. Anybody remember that? Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, for his, his seed to be multiplied. So for Abraham, there are those three key promises. Um, land, they'll have the promised land. They will have abundant seed, and there will be this covenant relationship with God. Right. And so in terms of the progress towards that all that together we call the kingdom of God. Um, in terms of our progress towards that kingdom, just look with me again at Exodus 1-7. God multiplies words to show how much the people have multiplied. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And we talked about how if you want to talk about um, people like the stars of the heavens and the sand of the seashore, we can say, check, we, we have arrived already in the 400 years sojourn in, in Egypt with this great uh, promise being realized. But there's still those other two promises, um, the promise of God creating a covenant, everlasting covenant with his people. In other words, a relationship, a, a firm, uh, committed relationship. And then, of course, the land for this people to dwell in. Those are both unrealized as of the end of Exodus 1, where we left off last time. Now, before we go any further, I do want to draw our attention to one other text in Genesis that really is super important for understanding what we're going to start hearing together, and that's back in Genesis 15. So if you want to turn back with me to Genesis 15, this is um, one of those key places where God 
reaffirms and expands the promises that he made to Abram, who's about to be renamed Abraham, but in this passage, he's Abram. And um, God says this. So look with me at Genesis 15, verse 13, and just reflect on this with me for a second. So, then the Lord said to Abram, and and, um, whenever you see the Lord in all caps, that's the divine name, Yahweh. That's going to be important for what we're going to see in a moment. Um, Then Yahweh, or the Lord, said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Okay, so there's a lot there, and we're not going to spend a ton of time here, but I, I just want us to reflect. What, what's kind of the big idea that Abram is, that God is telling to Abram, like way <laughs> on the front end? What, what's the big idea that God's promising here? How would you rephrase this passage? Yeah. Yeah, he's going to bring them out of the place where they're enslaved. doesn't specify Egypt here. We all know that's what he's talking about, right? Uh, but he's going to be faithful. Good. Any, any other things people want to add that seem really central or important here? Right. Yeah, he's going he's gonna to go to his fathers in peace. He's not going to see this bondage, right? Um, this isn't going to happen in his time. But this is coming for Abraham's offspring, right? And so when eventually they are enslaved in Egypt, right, and um, they're going through all of these sorrows, they already on the front end have this great encouragement that, okay, this is going to be for a while, but it's not going to be permanent. Right? He even puts a number on it. He says, 400 years or fourth generation. Um, good. And he even gives a rationale. Why is he waiting so long? Why do they have to wait so long? Yeah, the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. And this is kind of a, it requires a little uh, unpacking. But basically, the Amorites um, is a very general term for um, foreign nations. But in particular here, we're talking about the, the people who are listed down in verse 19 to 21, um, all these different peoples who dwell in the land of Canaan, whose iniquity is not complete. So God doesn't judge people who are not yet worthy of judgment. Obviously, these are all sinners, but their sin has not yet reached that point, that sort of boiling point of requiring God's justice. So when the um, book of Joshua happens and the, the Canaanites are destroyed or the Amorites are destroyed, um, that was after 400, and actually it becomes 480 years of waiting, <laughs> of God being patient with them, giving them opportunities to repent and turn back, as one of them, Rahab, actually did. Um, just another reminder of God's patience and his justice. Okay, so all this just to say that if you want to know what happens in the book of Exodus, God already gave you the Cliff's note 
version here <laughs> in Genesis 15. It's just another one of those places of God's sovereignty. Um, and one other, one, another passage like this is uh, Deuteronomy 30, where right on the cusp of the promised land, God basically tells them the entire story of the book of Kings, um, like hundreds of years before it happens. Our God knows all things. Now, back to the book of Exodus. We just saw in chapter 1 how God made the people very fruitful, but that made Pharaoh very threatened. He's like, "Uh uh-oh, what if they were to side with our enemies? We'd be toast because there's so many of these Israelites. And so he begins this policy of repression. He tries to destroy Israel by having the midwives kill the baby boys, which they don't. Um, And then at the very end of chapter 1, we have... um, Pharaoh commanding his people, every son that's born to the Hebrews is cast into the Nile. Okay? And we talked about how this is a part, picking up another thread from Genesis, the war between the seeds. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and, your offs- and, and the woman, and between her offspring and your offspring. And they're going to be attacking each other. So Pharaoh is trying to destroy the seed of the woman. What is going to be God's response? Well, we actually have another preview in chapter 2. And I'm just going to kind of dance my way through chapter 2 here all too fast because um, I really want to get us to chapter 3. We only have so many weeks this summer. But basically, chapter 2 is the birth of Moses. And isn't it interesting that when he is born, his mother says, wow, this is an amazing child. She hides him three months, but when she could hide him no longer, this is chapter 2, verse 3, she took him for a ba- uh, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. So, really interesting on a lot of levels. Here's this little baby. What's his doom? According to Pharaoh, he's supposed to go into the Nile and drown. She says, okay, I'll put him in the Nile. Right? But she puts him in a basket. Ah, or is it a basket? And this is where you should all learn Hebrew, because this is just incredible stuff. The word for basket is the same word, it's a very rare word, it's the same word used in Genesis 6 through 9 for ark. It is the same word, very rare word. And so what happens to Noah? He goes through the waters of judgment and emerges safely on the other side. Here's Moses as like a new Noah going through the waters of judgment, landing safely on the other side. Where, that's what, that reminds us of something in the past, but also reminds us of something in the future where it says she put him among the reeds. And the word in Hebrew later in Exodus for the Red Sea, we always see, see it as a Red Sea. It's actually the Sea of Reeds. And there's all kinds of, like, history of interpretation stuff for why it's the Red Sea. But the Sea of Reeds. So Moses is looking back to Noah and saying, hey, you remember how God rescued his people through water and there was a head of that humanity, that new humanity, who was Noah, and he made the way for a new humanity to emerge safe on the other side of God's judgment? Well, this guy's going to be like that. But then, not only that, Here's how I'm going to do it when it comes to the new humanity that's going to be saved, this people that Moses is going to lead. I'm going to see them through the reeds. 
right? And so Moses making his way through the water in the ark is a picture not only backwards but also forwards. Here's what God is about to do in Exodus 14 through 15. So there's all these kind of like amazing connections. Like the artistry of the Bible is just off the charts. Um, so anyway, she, um, she uh, puts him in the water, and um, of all people, <laughs> Pharaoh's daughter <laughs> is the one who finds him on the other side and uh, pulls him out. And it's sort of like, again, it's a, it's a pot shot at, at, at uh, Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh just was taken down a notch by the midwives who were more clever than he, right? And who said, oh, yeah, we are doing everything you, you told us to, but they're just so fast. They deliver so fast. And Pharaoh's like, oh, okay. Well, um, so here, his own daughter recognizes this must be one of the Hebrew children. Obviously, the command is kill the Hebrew children. What does she do? She finds a nurse for him so that he lives. Okay. The next thing we have is in chapters chapter 2, 11, where Moses grows up, sees one of the Hebrews being beaten by an Egyptian, intervenes, kills the Egyptian. Doesn't go well. He's got to go out into the wilderness and wander. And this is really interesting too, right? Because where have we heard about some people wandering in a wilderness for 40 years tending sheep? Israel, right? And so again, Moses is like a picture of Israel. Um, he even goes to, a, as we're about to see, a mountain with a burning bush, a, the, 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 the mountain that has the fire on it. Um, okay. Well, um, anyway, what do you think is the significance of the fact that Moses sees the oppression of his people, intervenes, kills the Egyptian, and then it doesn't go well? Like, what's that showing? Um, about Moses' idea of how to save the people. Yeah. He's taking matters into his own hands, taking, doing what's right in his own eyes, does not have God with him. And so what happens when you preempt God's deliverance and his timing, right? Um, doesn't go well. Um, Trying to save yourself and save the people in your own strength is, is not a recipe for success, right? Um, and so Moses, he is forced to flee, and he goes um, to a foreign land. And that's where we're now going to actually start getting into the text here and zeroing in. At the end of chapter 2, verse 23. Okay, so turn in your Bibles to Exodus 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Okay, we're going to press on into chapter 3 in just a moment, but um, right here in these three verses, we have a whole bunch of stuff going on. First off, it says that the people are groaning because of their slavery, crying for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Why do you think it says it that way? They're 
crying for help, their cry came up to God. And there, there's lots of good answers. I'm not, I'm not just fishing for one thing. But anytime we see something that's sort of like, oh, that's an interesting way of saying it, we should always ask, why did he say it that way? So, Yeah. Yeah, there's this sense of like uh, a sacrifice being offered up, like we see the smoke rising up from the sacrifice. That is how prayer is described in the Bible. Um, yeah. Good. Yeah, these these are repressed people, like low, low, right? And they're 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 cry for help, even though they are so debased and so you know. Uh, afflicted. Um, God, who is so high up, nevertheless hears. Right? It actually reminds me of um, Isaiah 57, 15. Let me just read that to you guys real quick. Um, this is just like the glorious character of our God. I dwell in a high and holy place, Isaiah 57, 15. I dwell in a high, a high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly. To revive the heart of the contrite. Or again, 1 Samuel 2, the song of Hannah. It's like the same thing. And same thing with the Magnificat. Magnificat. Um, what is the, who's the God we serve? He's the God who has regard for the lowly to raise them up. I, I won't read the song of Hannah. But um, yeah, great, excellent. Did I see another hand here? Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah, he doesn't forget what he remembered. That, that's actually something I was hoping we'll talk about in just a moment. So maybe we'll circle back. But um, did I see your hand? About, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, good. So, like, there's there's just a great groaning and uprising of, of sorrow and brokenness that is that is going up from the whole group, right? And isn't it interesting, right? It says they cried for help. To whom? Doesn't really say. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. One of the things that stands out to me there is it seems like they're not necessarily praying to the Lord. It's not like, oh, we should call on the name of Yahweh to help us. It's just, oh, we're hating this. Would somebody please get us out of this, right? And God hears their groaning, even if it isn't directed to him. That's at least, I think, one thing that might be going on. Did I see your hand, Anna? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. The up and down theme. This is this is this is what's so cool. Once you start getting into how the Bible operates, and you start realizing, okay, up and down like has a lot of significance in the Bible. And you start you start like you, if you read through the entire Bible looking for exaltation and humiliation language, up down language, whoa, huge connections start happening. Um, you start to realize these are huge categories, right? Um, the Lord at the cross 
was made low, and yet simultaneously it says that was his enthronement um, when he was lifted up on the cross, John 12. Um, lots of big things we could say there. But um, so God hears. Why does he hear? That's what we're going to see in verse 24. Even if they aren't calling on his name, even if they've forgotten the God of their fathers, what do we see in verse 24? God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So what do you think is important about these two verses, 24 and 25? Why do you think he says all those things? Yeah, the time has come. So as opposed to earlier in chapter 2, where Moses is like, we need to act now, and he takes matters into his own hands, right? Um, Hey, you're ahead of things, right? And I think, honestly, this is kind of what's going on in the Second Temple period, where we have the Maccabean revolt revolt and all this kind of thing. Um, They're getting impatient, waiting for God to show up to deliver them taking matters into their own hands, using violence, um, whatever, and uh, it's not the time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, God's being faithful, even if they're faithless. And again, we don't really know necessarily that they're sinning or have forgotten God, but there's at least a hint of that. And what do we see here? God knows his own. He remembers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even if they haven't remembered, his, their offspring ha- hasn't remembered all the promises, right? Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, so like at critical points, right, we who were tra- dead in our trespasses and sins, right, but God made us alive together with Christ, right? And so this is, this is uh, part of why I really am zeroing in on this, verse 14. 24 and 25 is this is the great hinge of the book of Exodus. Where is where where are the people going through this whole thing? Things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse. All of a sudden something happens and the trajectory is now going to change. What is the thing that changes the trajectory here? How would anybody rephrase it? But God and what what about God? Yes, Scott. They hit rock bottom. Excellent. So, so part of what's happening is God is patiently letting things get really bad to show them the desperation of their situation, right? You, you can't, can't get out of this yourself, right? Um, good. So they're hitting rock bottom, so that's at least part of God's purposes here. But, but what is the thing, and I think this is a, what you said is exactly right, but there, there's going to be more here. What is the thing that then changes the trajectory that is decisive for God taking action here. Remembering his covenant. And just just stew in that for a second. God heard, God remembered. He does not forget his ancient promises. And I think there's so much here for us, so much to encourage us, right? Like, we are now 2,000 or so years from the death and resurrection of Jesus. He said he's coming back. Where is he? How long, Jesus? How long will you tarry? Right? Has he forgotten? 
let us not say so. Right? Let us remember that he remembers his ancient promises, even if people by and large have forgotten. Right? And and I just want us to, to stew on this again of like, do you understand maybe from this verse a little bit more why I began the very first class talking about those covenants? Right? Land, seed, covenant relationship, um, all those things that God said. Um, even that passage we just read this this morning, fifteen chapter fifteen, thirteen through sixteen, um, where he's he's saying, Look, you guys are gonna be sojourners in a land that's not yours, you're gonna be oppressed there, but I'm gonna bring you out. I'm gonna judge that nation. God doesn't forget. He will remember. And again, the covenants are like the engine that drives the entire story of the Bible. You want to understand the drama of the Bible. You want to understand, like, what is propelling this story. God made stupendous promises, and we don't yet see them fulfilled. Therefore, if God is going to be shown to be an integrous God, we're going to see some action. Right? But we have to wait on his timing. And the, one of the coolest, kind of most curious, and I think one of the most artistic things in this little section is at the end of 25 where it says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And I just think it's like so brilliant on the narrator's part that he leaves out the direct object of no. God saw and God knew. And, and we're like, we're meant to ask, like, whoa, this sounds really important. Like, what did he know? So what do you think? What, what's the direct object? Of new. What did God know? Knew that the time has come? I, I think that's absolutely central. Yeah. Yeah, he knew what he was getting ready to do. He knew, like, okay, time for the man of war to take up his sword. Right? That's how God is described in 15. He's a man of war, right? Um, time, time to take the sword off the wall. Right? <laughs> um, yeah, good. Yeah, and, and also, um, I think there's an element, if you look down in 3.7, we haven't read this yet, but, um, uh, yeah, I, yeah, there it is. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. So, another one of those things that we're tempted to ask when God is silent and when God does not speak we're asking ourselves, does he even notice me? Does he even care? Does he even see what I'm going through? I don't hear him. I don't see any action right now. Does he even care? Yes. He knows your suffering. He knows what you are going through. And so I think all the answers that have been given are correct, um, but I think that at least one of the things also that he knows is their affliction and their sorrow. Um, so we have to trust him on that, right? Because he may not come down and say, hey, I know what you're going through. Hang in there. But in a sense, that's what he's doing right now in this Sunday school class. As he's saying through his word, that's what I was doing then. And that's what I still am. I'm still the God of compassion. Okay, let's press on into chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15 just to begin. We'll see how far we get. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb. Horeb is another name for Sinai. He came to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. <clears throat> and Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the f- Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all my generations. Okay, so there's more that unfolds here. We're going we're gonna to stop there. Okay, first question. All this is about Moses meeting with God, right, in, in the, the, the burning bush. One of the key issues that has to be made here is how does God introduce himself? How does God identify himself to Moses? Any, anything you guys notice there? What are some of the ways he identifies himself? Yeah. I am who I am. Good. Okay, so let's just look at that for a second. The, the, the lead up is, Moses says, well, if I go to them, what are, they're going to ask me what his name is, and so what is your name? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And right off the bat, we have a bit of a really cool drama here. Because there's been an already once when somebody really wanted to know the name of God, but God wouldn't tell him. Anybody remember that? Yeah, Genesis 32. Jacob wrestling with the angel, right? And, um, and basically, he won't, t- he won't tell. <laughs> he won't tell. But now he tells, right? Now, this is, this is climactic. He tells his name. So that tells us, okay, Moses is even higher than Jacob in terms of, like, his role in the history of redemption here. He's going to be doing—he occupies a more pivotal moment in redemptive history. And, wow, what a name. 
I am who I am. What does this name mean? Yeah. Good. Yeah, I'm not somebody you can put in a box. Um, I, I, I'm not going to be constrained. I'm not going to be um, defined by other things, right? Um, yeah, I think there's, a, there's great profundity in that, right? Um, there are lots of ways in which God is willing to condescend and to identify himself. He says, you know, he's the good shepherd, right? Um, he's, he's, the, he's the warrior, uh, the man of war, we, we find in Genesis or Exodus 15. Um, lots of other metaphors that he uses. He's a great king. I mean, we could go on and on. But when it all comes down to it, and I love this image that uh, <clears throat> one of my profs way back when said to me. He said, look, all those metaphors are like windows in a house. So you imagine God is in the house, and the windows are like one angle into who God is. So is God tender and caring? Yeah, he's like a shepherd. Is he also willing to exert violence for the sake of justice and righteousness? Is he a warrior? Yes, that's another angle into who he is, right? So you have all these angles, and yet all of them are just metaphors that if left unto themselves and you sort of absolutize one of them, you have a distorted view of God. In the end, what you have to do is put all of the windows together, sum up all the metaphors, and now you have a more complete picture of God, but even then, he's more than the windows can show you. I am who I am, right? So that's, I think, part of what was going on. Does he another hand? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He is not... Um, defined by other people, and he's not defined by, um, you know, events that happened, although, as you will see, he is willing to allow himself to be joined to history in critical ways. But always remembering, and I, I think this is so critical, that he is, he is the definer of himself, right? He is self-defining. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good. And and this is one of the things that can be a little bit of a riddle in this passage. Like, is this going to be the first time that they've ever even heard the name Yahweh? And we know that's not true because we see um, the word, the name Yahweh being invoked by the fathers and everything. So they at least knew his name before, and they called upon the name of Yahweh. Um, but has that been forgotten? Quite possibly. And so he needs to be reintroduced. He reintroduces himself as I am who I am. And let's just drill into this just a little bit more. How does this connect and explain the image of a bush that was burning yet not consumed? Verse 2. The bush was burning yet not consumed. And we're like, whoa. I mean, just like Moses, right? Like, <laughs> that's interesting, right? I think that the words help us to understand the image. Um, and they both actually kind of self, they, they reinterpret each other. So how, how does 
the bush that doesn't burn help us understand I am who I am. Yes, he's eternal and not temporary. Does God depend on anything? No. Right? So a fire depends on the wood to burn. You run out of, you know, the wood burns down, the fuel is expended, no more fire. Not so with God. Right? This, the fancy word for this is his, it's his aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. His independence on anything else for his existence. I am who I am. I am the self-defining God, but I'm also the self-dependent God. I do not depend on you guys for anything. I do not need you. You need me. I, need, I do not need you. Right? Super important for our theology of who God is. Right? What, ha- what do we lose? What, where, where, how does um, our view of God start to collapse if we say, well, you know, um, unless God created the world, he really wouldn't have been fulfilled in his identity as God. Like, what start, how does that start to erode our view of God? Yeah, if you need something before creation, how could he have existed before creation? Yeah, what were you saying, Anna? Yeah. Yeah. And yet it's exactly how all the ancient Near Eastern people viewed God. So one of my previous profs at, at Wheaton, um, John Walton, has this book on sort of ancient Near Eastern theology. And how did all the pagans view God? Well, they need us to do our part. We offer the sacrifices. We feed the gods. We dress the gods. That's what they would do for their idols. Make these big fancy idols. You know, we saw this from Jeremiah 10, right? They dress him in purple and they, they give him their, all his food. And, and we pay them off, give them what they want, and then they are supposed to give us what we want. They send the rain and they make our calves, uh, you know, the cattle to bear calves and all that kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> it's what um, Walton calls the great symbiosis. God shatters that. I do not need you. I am who I am. I am independent of you. I am like a fire on a bush where the bush is not burnt. And yet you need me, and that's why I'm here. Um, and this is his grace. One other thing we could say about I am who I am is God is willing. He, he is free to do whatever he pleases. And this is just so important. Later we'll hear, and I think it's Exodus 33, I show mercy to whom I show mercy, and I, I, I show compassion to whom I show compassion, and then I also judge whom I see fit to judge, right? And so um, Paul picks up on this in Romans 9 to say, God is free to save, and he is free not to save. And this is just so important, because when we get this, then we start to understand how awesome it is that he saves any of us, that he freely chose to save us. Okay, so much more we could say about I am who I am, but let me just ask this question here. What do we lose if we start to think we can fully comprehend God, such that there is no, like, beyondness about him, such that there is no mystery cloaking his identity? Um, Obviously, the Bible doesn't say that he's entirely mysterious, so that if you say anything about God... Um, 
you're saying something wrong. No, he, he gives us words to be able to talk about him. And he enables us to see some of who he is so that we can with confidence say, he is the good shepherd, he is the good warrior, he is the good king. But what do we lose if we start to think, I got God all figured out? No mystery to God. What do we lose? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, good. So we start to erode the creator-creature distinction where there is an infinite chasm between the creator and the creatures. Right? We are finite. God is infinite. And part of what it means for God to be infinite is he is incomprehensible, which doesn't mean you don't know anything about him. It just means you can't fully describe him or put him in a box. Right? Uh, I love the, you know, the, the, the great quote from uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Is he a tame lion? No, he is not a tame lion. It's part of what we're, we're bringing out here. He is God, and there's always going to be more to him than we think. And so part of what this should give us is a really healthy dose of humility, right? So, like, as Reformed people, we love um, all the heritage we have theologically. We love the Westminster Standards. But we also don't want to make an idol out of our theology right? And think, hey, we got it all figured out. Here it is. 1640s, boom. We've got it all right there, right? <laughs> Bad. Never want to go there, <laughs> right? Want to be thankful and, you know, build on the heritage that we have and not be anti-confessional where we just toss out all the good work of our forefathers. But at the same time, we don't want to say, oh, there's nothing more to say, right? Okay. All right. Now, let's just say a little bit more. How else does God identify himself in this passage? am who I am. How else does he talk about himself? What else do you, do you notice here? <clears throat> yes, Anna. Good. Excellent. Yes, yeah, so verse 6. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What does he mean by that? What does that mean, to be the God of Abraham. I think there's multiple things we could say here. Good. Good. Yeah, so you remember Abraham. You remember how he had these amazing encounters with God. I'm that same God, right? So there's narrative continuity here between the God who's now meeting with Moses, and even uh, the way he greets Moses, a uh, Moses, Moses, it's just like he greets Abraham when uh, Abraham is about to slay his son. Abraham, Abraham. And it's really cool later on in 1 Samuel, uh, at the end of chapter 1, wait, end of chapter 2, um, he calls, and it says, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Uh, anyway, um, so, okay, um, this is the same God. Good. What else do we get? Uh, what else is being said when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What is he, what's he getting at? Yeah. Yes. Same God whom they believed in, and also the same God who made those covenants, right? Um, so this always comes up in covenant contexts. 
Um, the God who cut those covenants with those, those guys, here he is. And again, this is God's incredible humility. Like, here's I am who I am, who's willing to come down and to be called the God of these guys, who enters history to be connected to these guys and to say, now I'm on the move, I'm acting because I am the God who made these promises before I'm still invested in these guys. I should have said one other thing. This is just out of place, but I should have said it. When we're talking about I am who I am, there's also a, a, a wordplay going on here. Um, the word Yahweh sounds like the word to be, and it seems to be derived from the word of Hebrew to, to be. So Echya means I will be or I am. And Echya, Asher Echya, is what it says here. I will be who I will be. And then he says, just the next verse, Yahweh. Um, may not sound that similar to us, but it's, they're both connected. So the name Yahweh comes from the name to be. He is the one who exists unto himself. Um, that's where he gets his name. Yeah. Yes. That's right. And he says, I'm the God of your father and of all these ancestors, too, and therefore I am your God, right, by dint of that. That's exactly right. Um, I am still invested in these, the offspring of, of these people. And by the way, here's another sense in which our American individualism just gets shattered, right? It's not, oh, everybody grows up and decides, oh, I think I'll worship the same God as my parents. No, like by automatically, by being born into a Christian family, God is your God. That's part of why we baptize our kids, is they immediately, by dint of being in this Christian family, inherit the identity of being part of the tree, being part of the, 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 the great olive tree, Romans 11, which leads, which is the, the people of God. Okay, now, we always end with Christ, right? Um, there's more stuff I was going to talk about with Moses' reluctance. Um, maybe we'll talk about that next time. But, uh, yeah. So, what was the thing that motivated God to act, the promises. Exodus 2, 24 through 25. God, remember the covenant God knew, right? Isn't it amazing when we start reading passages like this? Turn with me. Oh, actually, you don't have to turn there. I, I know it's kind of hard uh, to, when I'm flipping around all the time. But I'm just going to read for you Micah 7, verse 2. This is after the people have gone into exile and they're like, is there a future for us? Micah 7, verse 2. Verse 20. Uh, Micah 7, verse 20. This is the very last verse of Micah. God, he says, um, he's speaking to God, and he says, who's a God like you? He says, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and chesed, this special word, covenant love, steadfast love, to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So they're asking themselves, they've been kicked out of the land, they're in Babylon, and they're saying, is there any hope for us? What is the hope of Israel? Even after all the stuff they've been through, when they're in exile, what is their hope? Yeah, Phyllis. Say again? And to return to their homeland, exactly. That God will, he will be true to that land promise, right? And we're going to add? 
That's right. Somehow, someway, God will keep his ancient promises, even still, even after all the sin and all the apostasy. And, and just flip back for a second. I mean, this, this is like a major, huge theme. But Leviticus 26, at the end of the covenant curses, um, I keep saying flip back, but it really is, we're going to go so fast. He says this, Leviticus 26 he says, when they're, they're in the land of their enemies and they've been exiled, isn't it amazing that he's telling them this like, hundred, like a thousand years before this happens? And they're in the land of their enemies and they, make, <clears throat> they, they humble themselves and cry out. Hey, that reminds us of being humbled and crying out in Egypt, right? I will remember my covenant with Jacob. This is Leviticus 26, 42. And I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land. And he says, I'm going to bring them back. Or Deuteronomy 4. Again, he foresees that they will be in exile. And he says, when they're in exile and they seek me with all their heart and with all their soul. Deuteronomy 4. Where is it? (laughs) Verse 31. He says, the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. The covenant remains the great engine that drives all of history. Then when we turn to Luke chapter 1, this is just ridiculously awesome, mind-blowing stuff. Look at this. When Zechariah has his baby boy, John the Baptist, he says this, now it's happened. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Luke 1:68. for he has visited and redeemed his people. That's an Exodus word. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us. Why? Because he's showing the mercy or the covenant faithfulness promised to our fathers, verse 72, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. There it is again. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Why did Jesus come? According to this text, why did Jesus come? There's lots of right right, right answers, but what, what is this text saying? to fulfill the ancient promises to Abraham. So here's Abraham. He lived like, you know, 2000 B.C. Did God still remember that promise? Like, Abraham's long gone. Oh, yes. He is an oath-keeping, covenant-keeping God. And even the very first verse of the New Testament triggers all this when it says, Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The promises. God is an oath-keeping God. So when we remember God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When we remember this love of God that initiates salvation when we don't deserve it, we should remember that as a God who the reason why he's doing that loving thing and indeed the, the whole reason why there are these promises in the first place is because of his love But the thing that keeps the history going and keeps the trajectory going and that motivates God is his compassion for his people and his covenant faithfulness. How does that help us? Any any thoughts on that? How how does what we're seeing about who God is here in Exodus 2 and 3, how does this help us as Christians in our daily walk? Chuck? Chuck?
Exactly. Yeah, we can think of a lot of reasons why God should give up on us, right? Um, and especially when we're in a bad place, those reasons sound very, very persuasive. Like, I have truly messed this up. Or, like, there's no bones about it. I have sinned here. I have huge regrets. Um, I honestly don't know why God would have anything else to do with me, and it sure looks like he's punishing me right now. We have to banish those thoughts, right? And say, I may well have sinned, and I surely have here, but that doesn't nullify the promises. does not nullify the oath that he made to Abraham. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Our, our assurance is not based on the strength of our faith, but on the strength of God's promises, which are unbreakable. So doesn't it then make sense why Jesus could say, you have faith the size of a mustard seed? You know, the, the tiniest, itty-bitty little shred of trust and hope in God? It's great. It's all you need, <laughs> right? Because of who God is, um, he's the one. It's his, the strength of his faithfulness, not the strength of our faith. Excellent. Any other thoughts about how this encourages us? I'm just blown away by, like, the drama of thinking of what it must have been like. Must have, what was it like to be, like, literally 400 years in Egypt with God doing, from all the appearances, nothing? And, uh, you know, you read some modern Jewish uh, writers, like guys post-Holocaust, like Eli uh, Weissel and um, these other guys, um, it's all about the silence of God. God doesn't act. God doesn't talk. He, that's your experience. But you're not going by what the Word says. And the Word says is God can take his time, but he's not going to be silent forever. He will act. He does not forget his promises. Who knows when Jesus is coming back? could be tomorrow could be 83,000 I have no idea he won't forget so let's thank him for that let's pray Lord thank you so much as we've seen <clears throat> that you see the groaning of your people and even when it doesn't feel like you know you do know and we know Lord that um, all of history really is in your hands you're the one who reversed the trajectory of Israel's downward spiral in this passage and you were also the one who definitively reversed the spiral of all humanity when you sent your son for the great new exodus. And one day there will be the final great reversal. And the old creation will be destroyed once and for all. Sin will be banished forever. And we will dwell with you in perfect glory. And at that time, we will not be saying to ourselves, Lord, why did you take so long? We'll know, Lord, that everything you did was right. And so, God, we pray, give us this kind of trust. Help us to really believe that you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're the God who keeps these covenant promises forever. And you will keep them in the end when you return in glory. We look forward to that. Pray it would come soon. We ask it in Jesus' name.